0: Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Be a Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own energy empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy
1: it. So this episode today is all about hormones, regardless of where you are in your life. If you're in your reproductive years, if you're postpartum, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, if you're in perimenopause, menopause or beyond this episode is for you. And one of the most interesting parts of this episode is how we discuss that common brain disorders or things like ADHD, depression, and anxiety can actually be symptoms of hormonal imbalance. And Yasmin, I don't know if you remember, but last year when I had met all of these moms who were new moms, I was talking to a lot of them and they had explained that they were, a lot of them were going through postpartum depression and anxiety. And a lot of them were taking antidepressants, which is absolutely necessary. Sometimes like that is definitely needed in some situations. But it hit me when I was talking to a lot of these moms that is anybody checking their hormones, because our hormones do so many crazy things after we give birth. And sometimes these symptoms like depression and anxiety can actually be something like postpartum thyroiditis, or maybe we're having imbalances in estrogen and progesterone and cortisol. So I thought that was a really cool part of this episode.
0: Yes, Kea, that was super, super fascinating. And I haven't had any kids yet, but just me even understanding how my own personal moods shift before my period, you know, before we started BIA and I went down my own health journey, I definitely felt like a completely different person. And I thought I was crazy. And it wasn't until I really understood hormones, which I knew nothing about that in the past, where I realized, oh, okay, like these shifts are because I'm about to get my period. And yes, that's
1: normal, but it shouldn't be so volatile. A 100% Yasmin. I definitely went through the same thing. And for me, it was estrogen dominance. I have too much estrogen in relationship to progesterone. And we know progesterone is needed for better sleep and better mood regulation. And so I think it's kind of really empowering to know this information because so many of the mystery symptoms that we women feel can be traced back to hormonal imbalances.
0: Yeah. And what was so also fun about this episode specifically is that we go pretty detailed into our own lab work when it came to our own thyroid hormones. I personally learned a lot. And I think if you're listening in, Dr. Lena has a really unique approach on how to look at the
1: different levels where I
0: think you would find it super, super valuable.
1: Totally. Because so often I think women feel maybe off and they go to their doctor and their doctor looks at their lab work and says, you're within range. Everything is normal. But Dr. Elena actually explains that there's a difference between normal and optimal, especially when it comes to our hormones and things like thyroid. We even talk about testosterone and why that's necessary for women. So I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. Dr. Elena is on a mission to empower women to be their best health advocates and she is helping women break through the common myths they are taught about hormones and women's health. She is an award-winning naturopathic medical doctor specializing in endocrinology and with over 20 years of nutrition and exercise science. Her focus is on helping women from all stages of life and especially women in perimenopause get out of conventional ways of thinking about hormones and provide much-needed relief and answers to the most common hormone-related symptoms. Like many women, she struggled with PCOS, poor gut health, and infertility, and she shares the hidden truths in medicine about hormones and women's health. So let's get into it. I wanna talk about this idea of being tired and wired, which is something that I went through, especially postpartum. And it's this idea of being really depleted of energy but simultaneously being not able to sleep or not able to rest so it's a very strange feeling i experienced it for the first time in my life really in the past two years since being postpartum so i think a lot of women can relate to that feeling what's going on in your body when you're wired and you're tired and what advice do you have for somebody in that situation
2: Yes, I think a lot of women postpartum and not postpartum can relate to this. It's the weirdest feeling where you're supposed to be falling asleep but you just have this burst of energy. I call it sometimes the second wind. Other other people also call it the second wind. And frequently it's an imbalance in two major hormones, which is cortisol and progesterone. And a lot of times what happens is Cortisol is supposed to spike in the morning, then it gradually goes up, and then it's supposed to start to come down in the afternoon and into the evening. And it's supposed to be pretty low around the time that we're supposed to be going to bed. Just naturally matches our circadian rhythm. What happens in people who are wired and tired is that they actually experience a cortisol spike. And we can even see that in their saliva or urine tests that they do throughout the day, that they actually might even get two peaks in cortisol, one in the morning and then one in the evening, or they'll feel tired and they'll have low cortisol throughout the day. And then they have a spike in the evening or around bedtime, which is when they're not supposed to be having that spike. So it happens frequently in postpartum. It happens frequently to those whose circadian rhythm is a bit disturbed. Let's say people who work late, have to stay up late, students, high school students, college students, any time in our lives when we're faced with a significant amount of stress and we have to go, go, go during the day and we deplete cortisol followed by a time when we're supposed to relax, we get this spike in cortisol right before we go to bed. And what I generally recommend is trying to do a workout or get your exercise in in the morning so that we can match our natural morning production of cortisol so that you have sustained energy during the day. And I have yet to meet a person who, if we just make that shift, or if we include exercise during the day period, that they don't feel better. I have yet to meet a person who doesn't feel better after incorporating exercise during the day. They usually sleep better and their energy is better the next day. And of course there are nutrients that we can incorporate to lower our cortisol levels. Um, Phosphatidylserine is a good one. The caveat with that is, you know, we want to make sure that we know what our cortisol levels are. We want to make sure that if they're normal and we take phosphatidylserine, we don't want to suppress cortisol because then we're going to have other issues. And we also want to test progesterone and see, well, mm-hmm. is it suboptimal progesterone? And in a lot of women, whether they're in their 20s or 30s, we start to experience perimenopause or postpartum, low progesterone levels It's a huge factor and generally incorporating something like Phytax or like wild yam Root before bed, some of those phytoprogesterone herbs. You know, you guys have a great product, the seed cycling, right? Which has that phytoprogesterone component, especially to support that second half of the cycle that can help with sleep
1: as well. Yeah, that's great. I want to talk about cortisol for a minute because typically when people think about cortisol, they think negative things they're like oh cortisol is too high that means my stress is really high and you want to you know lower your cortisol but cortisol is really important actually and for me specifically i remember postpartum doing all of my labs and seeing my cortisol i was having that really beautiful spike in the morning and then it was flatline so the rest of the day it was just really low and i don't think people think oh, low cortisol could also be an issue. So can you talk about this really fine balance that we wanna have?
2: Yes, absolutely. We get this idea in our head that something is good or bad in the body. And when in reality, just all about balance. I frequently even talk about progesterone as being one of the best hormones for women. We wanna keep it in balance. We don't want it, We don't want too much of any hormone. And cortisol has been deemed like this bad guy, just like estrogen, where you know most people don't hear about low cortisol. Everyone hears about high stress, high cortisol, and we wanna do everything to just suppress that hormone. And like you said, it is so important. It regulates our blood sugar, so we wanna have it in optimal levels. Too little cortisol, and this is when people are starting to crave sugar carbs, something to improve glucose a little bit more instantly because your cortisol levels are suppressed and there's nothing really to activate that release of glucose into the bloodstream. And glucose is also really, I'm sorry, not glucose, but cortisol. Glucose is also really important, but cortisol, it regulates our immune system and our inflammation. And what pre- frequently happens is that when you go through a really stressful life experience you tend to be on that higher cortisol level side of things and once you let's say take a vacation and you're in relaxed mode what happens usually people get sick right because all of a sudden that you're your cortisol levels drop and you have immune dysregulation and you're more likely to get sick. And so that we see that happening really frequently. So cortisol, we want to keep it in balance, just like all other hormones, you know, too much. And we can be wired, but tired, feeling really anxious. Um, and too little. And we could also just be really exhausted during the day and trying to get our sugar up by reaching it for snacks that we later
0: regret. I love that. And you know, one thing I just appreciate about a lot of the content that you do is you know it's not about steering away from stress, but building that resiliency to go hard and manage that stress. And that's something I think about a lot because Kay and I are just so passionate about our business and work. it's very much all-encompassing. I genuinely love it. but I'm always thinking about, okay, how do I support myself, build that resilience of just like a growing business or you know just the modern world that we live in is so much more stressful than years ago. So I'm just curious from your perspective with your own life because you're an incredible woman, incredible entrepreneur, and the women that you work with, what are some things that you would recommend for someone listening who's like, "Gosh, I just want to be able to, you know, have a stronger resiliency when it comes to stress, so it doesn't shoot my cortisol and impact my overall health.
2: Yeah, I love that. It took me years to find what works for me mm. and to find how how can I manage my stress better? How can I manage my energy? Where do I put the boundaries? What's a priority for me?" And I spent a lot of years kind of falling flat on my face because I wouldn't honor those things. And I finally learned like I have to honor, I have to meet my body where it's at and I have to understand what are my deal breakers and what are my priorities. So if I were to break it down, I don't compromise on sleep, my diet, my exercise. So those three things, those are the things that I abide by. So when it comes to my sleep, I've figured out for myself over time that I need to have at least from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. That's my sweet spot. It could be even better if I could sleep in until seven, but you know, with a six-year-old, you have to be kind of reasonable. (laughs) So I usually say with my sleep, it's 10 to six. And I my exercise is really important to me as well. So that's the things I could never just work, 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 and not make time to move my body. Even before I hopped on this podcast, I went for like a 20 minute walk. I did a 10 minute yoga session because I worked out in the morning. Then I had a few calls with my patients, and my body's used to moving around. I grew up as an athlete, so movement, exercise, it's really important to me. So I would even encourage a lot of people who are listening to this podcast what are some ways that you can build more movement into your life? Because we live a really sedentary life, and that can cause. Extra tension and anxiety and affect our insulin levels and glucose metabolism. So, if we even want to have better sleep, we have to build in that extra movement during the day. So, not to just get caught up, oh, I did my workout for the day. Did you walk? Did you stretch? Did you take a bath just to get the lymph system going? So, sleep exercise. And, you know, every time I deviate, if I'm like, no, I'm just going to work one more hour and go to bed at 11 or no, I really want to set up this new page on my website. It always bites me in the butt (laughs) the next day. And I'm always like, why did I do that? Why did I deviate from the plan? Don't deviate from the plan. Um, and life happens. It's, you know, I'll go to a conference and I'll stay up a little bit later, but I'm usually not like go, go, go the next day. Uh, we have to be kind of smart about when, when we deviate from the plan. And then when it comes to my diet, I made a commitment many years ago, probably now two decades that just processed sugar, excess alcohol, excess caffeine, processed foods in general are something that do not resonate with my body. And I may have them in small amounts every once in a while, because I'm human, and I want to enjoy life. But it is not something that is part of my day to day experience. And so to build resilience, we have to make sure that we're also supporting the body, yeah. if we're asking the body and their mind to do things day in and day out, whether we're building a business, or we want to be a badass parent or, you know, be a great physician, then we have to fuel as such right? We have to treat our body like that temple, mm. like we want it to be. So those are the things that I I um, I preach, I practice in my own life is optimizing sleep, optimizing performance through exercise, both mental and physical, as well as, you know, making sure that it's whole foods. Um, I eat mostly Whole30 paleo style, but I, I call it more of a modified version because I enjoy grains every once in a while and I love my cup of coffee and chocolate sometimes. So it's, it's easy to follow. And of course I can mention some of the supplements that I really love that have helped me along the way, but it's like, unless you get that foundation, you don't even need to mess with the supplements.
0: Hey everyone. It's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking seed cycling. What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless list for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode.
1: I want to pivot to talking about hormonal imbalances because you mentioned anxiety and i think that something that happens frequently in this modern stressed out world is that people are exhibiting symptoms of anxiety depression maybe adhd things that they feel are brain symptoms but not knowing that there might be a connection to their hormones specifically a lot of women in different stages of their lives So what's the connection between hormonal imbalances and brain symptoms?
2: Such a great question. And I wish more people would look at any mood or mental disorders through the lens of a hormonal imbalance. Because so many times, this is a woman's journey and this is a journey that I went through, probably every woman has gone through. You schedule an appointment with your primary care physician because you're having anxiety or you're experiencing PMS or PMDD symptoms leading one to two weeks before your cycle. It's a 15 minute, if it's that. Maybe it's more like a five minute conversation with your primary care physician. Here's some birth control or here, here's an anti-anxiety or anti-depression medication. And that is the journey that most women go through for all of their symptoms, including mental or mood disorders. Whereas if we look at it from the perspective of hormones, a lot of symptoms like ADD, ADHD, anxiety, and depression can be linked back to some sort of underlying hormone imbalance. And I'm not saying no to these medications. If you guys look at my content, I'm very balanced. I don't think that we can solve things 100% always naturally, but we should always try to do the least invasive, the minimally invasive route first. And try to do no harm by trying more, the more natural, the better route first, and then, you know, use medications as necessary. But symptoms, let's just give a few examples, symptoms of ADD and ADHD. A lot of times women will feel like they have brain fog, they have trouble focusing, Mm -hmm. they have um, fatigue, and they also have sugar cravings because they feel tired. So when they get, they go to a psychiatrist and, okay, you have a trouble trouble focusing, you're feeling overwhelmed because you can't focus, that causes anxiety, ADD, ADHD, Here's some Vyvanse or some Adderall. And all of their symptoms don't necessarily go away. Let's say they might have a little better focus, a little bit more energy, who wouldn't? If you pump a bunch of dopamine and epinephrine through the system, I would have more energy as well. But would, they still can have symptoms like fatigue, hair loss could still be happening, dry skin, metabolic issues. So it's not necessarily addressing the root cause of what they're feeling. So ADD, ADHD frequently gets mixed up with hypothyroidism. Mm. And for a lot of women, oh my goodness, if we just balance progesterone, for a lot of women, a lot of their anxiety symptoms would settle down. And the reason for that is progesterone affects the GABA receptors in the brain. Mm. And I was listening to this podcast once, and there was a couple MDs talking about progesterone. And one asks the other, like, well, what's the mechanism? Why do women feel more calm on progesterone? And I was like, I know the answer. I know the answer, <laughs> but I can't speak because I'm not on the podcast. But it is because progesterone gets metabolized into a GABA agonist. And that is why women, when they have low progesterone levels, they experience BMS, they experience BMDD. They don't need an anti-anxiety medication. They don't need birth control to control their mood. They just need to optimize those progesterone receptors, whether we do it naturally through phytoprogesterone herbals or supplements or implement bioidentical progesterone into the mix. And you know, testosterone is really important for women. So when women feel depressed, most likely their testosterone is on the lower end. Mm-hmm. So instead of putting them on antidepressant medication, we need to optimize their testosterone levels so they can feel confident, motivated, and not so depressed. So I think when it comes to mood disorders, I've probably convinced our listeners that it's so important to consider hormone imbalances as potential culprits.
0: I love that. I think a lot of women don't even understand what a hormonal imbalance is because so many symptoms, even outside of the mood aspects or PMS that we talked about is so normal. So I know this is probably a very basic question, but I still think a lot of women are confused. What are maybe a few other surprising things that you've seen in your practice that are considered hormonal imbalances that maybe you know women are just living with day to day? Yeah,
2: absolutely. It's so funny as I'm thinking about this when you're asking this question, I could probably go down the whole alphabet and list (laughs) of symptoms per letter, you know, and then some, but some of the, some of the less common or maybe ones that women don't really think about include GERD. So acid reflux. And in fact, a lot of thyroid conditions like low thyroid or suboptimal thyroid function is linked to low acid production. And so a lot of people think that, well, if I have acid reflux, Mm. that probably means that I have low or I'm sorry, that probably means that it's high stomach acid, that I have too much and they get put on PPIs, where in reality, a lot of studies show that actually people with GERD have stomach, the stomach acid underproduction, And when we improve thyroid levels, now we're able to get back to normal or regular stomach acid production. So GERD is one of the symptoms. Also um, digestive issues, so constipation, diarrhea, also frequently associated with thyroid. So if you have too much thyroid hormone, such as with hyperthyroidism, you know, you could have diarrhea. If you have too little of the thyroid hormone, then you can experience constipation, which can then lead to bloating and gas and even SIBO as well. Some other really uncommon, I was going to say common to me, but uncommon to <laughs> Uh, a lot of a, a lot of women struggling um, with this is I would say even cardiovascular changes. So changes in heart rate and rhythm. So I see a lot of women, perimenopausal, menopausal starting to experience arrhythmias or changes in heart rate. Mm. And that can also be linked back to the thyroid hormone. So a lot of women will be scared to start on the thyroid hormone because they think it'll just speed up their heart rate. And I'll say, no, actually, if we incorporate the thyroid hormone that it'll regulate your metabolism And your metabolic rate and that includes your heart rate as well and i the other two really um uncommon symptoms that i think people don't think about are um, frequency in getting cold or colds or getting sick so this is when you know someone sneezes and they're like 20 rows ahead of you and you're the person that gets the cold or The women who say leading up to their cycle, they feel body aches as if they're Mm -hmm. going to get sick. So, um, or, you know, you're the one that always catches the cold in your house. Everyone else is fine, but you happen to be the person who always gets sick. So just frequency and how increasing frequency of getting colds or flus and all those things, infections. And lastly, one symptom that I would ask women to pay attention to is trouble gaining lean muscle mass. And this frequently happens as we get older, but it is a a really big sign that our hormones are out of whack. So if you're exercising, you're eating a lot of protein during the day, but it looks like you're not building muscle and gaining more fat, then it's a sign of a hormone imbalance.
1: Wow. So everybody should be looking into hormonal imbalances (laughs) is basically the uh, bottom line. But I have a lot of women in my life who are going through perimenopause or suspect that they are, and they've started to experience some of the symptoms that you're mentioning. And a big one that I hear is, I wake up in the middle of the night, I have to pee frequently, I can't get back to sleep, my sleep is just not the same, I just feel like I'm gaining weight all of a sudden. And I encourage them to get their hormones tested, and then I wanna talk to them about bioidentical hormones because this could be an option for them. So what are bioidentical hormones versus synthetic hormones? And who are they a good fit for?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I think there's so much confusion on this topic. It's going to take a long time for us to all get on the same page. And I don't know if we ever will. But I think the Women's Health Initiative pretty much ruined hormone replacement therapy for a lot of women. And so it's taking time to, to help women understand what's the difference between, difference between synthetic hormones, bioidentical hormones, and how can we advocate for ourselves and make sure that we're getting prescribed the right hormones, but also the right combination of hormones. So the main difference between synthetic hormones and bioidentical hormones is in their chemistry. Um, bioidentical hormones, they are created to mimic our own biological hormone. So when we apply it, take it orally or have it as a pellet, whatever form, it is seen by the body as its own. So it's not there to create chaos. It is we're simply increasing levels technically of our own natural hormone. So synthetic hormones are slightly different in their chemical structure. And they come with a lot of negative side effects. So just to compare and contrast, estradiol in bioidentical form, so BHRT, estradiol reduces the risk of blood clots. Whereas synthetic estrogen, such as found in oral contraceptive pills, right? It can increase the risk of blood clots and cancer. And the list goes on and on of negative side effects. With bioidentical hormones and their implementation, we actually see a reduction in cardiovascular disease, um, reduced risk of neurodegenerative disease and um, cognitive decline. We also see a reduction in breast cancer or risk of getting breast cancer and and a host of other cancers. And so, and I just even want to mention the fact that a lot of people get scared of, or a lot of women are scared of. Cancer and hormone replacement, the risk of not being on hormone replacement then predisposes you for greater risk of cardiovascular disease. And it's not cancer, but it's cardiovascular disease and heart disease that is the number one killer for women. And even if you go on the um, American Heart Association website and you read about the research behind estradiol, you'll actually be surprised at the impact that estradiol has on our hearts and the health of our hearts. And so I think it becomes really important to just rethink how we um, how we look at hormone replacement and that bioidenticals are very different in their function. They almost have the opposite function of synthetic hormones and have so many benefits on all, all different systems in, in the female body. And how I would approach it is Make sure that when you are, uh, when your provider starts you on hormone replacement, always clarify: is this bioidentical? And if if it's bioidentical, let's say yeah, it's estradiol, it's bioidentical. That it's offset by progesterone as well. We have to have those checks and balances when it comes to hormone replacement, even when they're bioidentical.
1: And so somebody could go to a conventional practitioner, and this is something I don't know, and they could be prescribed bioidentical hormones. Is that right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. You don't need to work with an ND or a DO or a functional medical doctor. You can always ask your primary care physician or your OBGYN or your endocrinologist if this is something that they're open to. The likelihood that they will is still very small because Mm -hmm. it's taking time for all of us to get on the same page of not only We should only be prescribing bioidentical hormone replacement, but we should also prescribe estradiol with progesterone to combat its negative side effects. Because progesterone, it keeps estrogen in check. Estrogen likes for things to grow. Progesterone keeps that growth at bay. And even though a woman's estradiol may be on the lower end, if we just plump her up with estradiol and have nothing to offset that, we're just causing trouble, not intentionally, but there's so many ways to just reduce our risk for getting cancer. And I would say the following, you kind of have to go through the interview process of your provider. If you love your primary care physician or any other healthcare provider, but you're in the stage of life where now you may be considering hormone replacement for whatever reason, maybe you're postpartum and your mood is suffering. Maybe you're in perimenopause and you're like, I'm not sleeping, my anxiety is through the roof, I'm losing hair, my skin sucks. It's like low progesterone, low progesterone, low progesterone. Mm -hmm. And you wanna have that conversation with your healthcare provider, ask them what their experience is with hormone replacement. Are they open to testing your levels? If the levels come up suboptimal, do they even know what optimal levels are? Or are they just looking kind of at the range? Because Mm -hmm. you know it may come back normal, but it could be suboptimal. And then also, if they are going to treat you for, let's say, suboptimal progesterone levels, what are they going to prescribe? Because we'd want to make sure that we get prescribed the bioidentical versus and, and not the synthetic. And don't be disheartened. My, you know, One of the things that I want our listeners to know is there are so many providers, again, whether they're MD, ND, DO, it doesn't matter, NP, who would be happy to work with you and who you can find. Um, who would do the right thing and prescribe the right hormones and do all the testing. There's a small percentage of conventional providers. Just to, again, we're, we're, we're still catching up with the data and the research. They are, not us, but they they are. And, and, and so it can it take a little bit more time to find that provider who's maybe in your network, who you can use your insurance with. But don't be disheartened if that provider, you know, does not take that holistic approach. There are many other providers that you just need to interview um, who would be happy to work with you.
1: That's really great advice. And I'd also love for you to touch on testosterone, which you talked about earlier, but we work with a lot of women who feel my testosterone is very high, I have symptoms of PCOS, but not recognizing that testosterone is also really important for women. So I would love for you to talk about that.
2: Yes, if I had a penny for every time I heard that, oh, my physician put me on spironolactone because my testosterone levels were too high. And when I would look at the testosterone levels, let's say they're 35 or 45, I'm like, that's not high. That's actually, we could even get it a little bit higher if we really wanted to. And that's so unfortunate. And when it even comes to PCOS, Um, majority of the time it's actually a progesterone to estrogen imbalance. And so, but frequently testosterone is seen as the bad guy here. So testosterone for women, it is so important. I feel like it is the hormone that really gives us that superpower. And in terms of even blood level concentration, we have more testosterone compared to even estrogen, which is kind of crazy, but this is why women we are able to do the things that we can to feel motivated, to feel sexy, to feel confident. Testosterone is so important for us. And then especially also for bone density and muscle mass as well. And building muscle mass as we age is so critical and supporting healthy testosterone levels as we age is also very important. If you think about it, a lot of our hormones, they start to decline after the age of 24. So there's this really small window when we're like, we're feeling great. (laughs) And it's usually after college when adulthood hits, it's like, no, we don't feel so great paired with, you know, hormone imbalance and those declining hormone levels. So testosterone is what gives women that superpower. And I don't believe that we need to be putting women on spironolactone to, to lower testosterone, I think it's okay to be on spironolactone to offset some of that aromatase activity. So aromatase enzyme um, can contribute to symptoms like acne um, and excess hair growth. So if other things don't work, if natural methods don't work, like seed cycling and a little bit of sub palmetto and working on the gut, if those things don't work, if you're doing all the right things, then a little bit of spironolactone can help but not in the significant amounts that they're being prescribed.
0: You know, you mentioned something that is fascinating to me. I had no idea that after the age of 24 that our hormones naturally dip. What I've been seeing just with our customers at BIA and friends and people I know we have a lot of women like in their 30s who are getting these more menopausal symptoms. So their hormones are dipping even earlier. So I'm curious, outside of age, like what might be causing this, you know, epidemic of women dealing with lower hormonal imbalances when they're still, you know, not in their 40s or 50s?
2: I think for one, we're more aware. So we're more aware of the hormone imbalances. And there's a lot more research, there's a lot more data data. Women are talking about this more. And I think just having a greater conversation and awareness is now shedding light that it's not just women in their 40s and 50s that used to get the attention when it comes to hormone imbalances. It is actually there. Where women are starting to experience these hormone imbalances, and men too. By the way, low testosterone in early 30s is not mm-hmm. uncommon for men, and even in their late 20s. But it's I think just because we're shedding more light on the hormone imbalances, what they are. And so we know that just women can experience these fluctuations at a younger age. We don't have to wait until we're 40s or 50s. However, we also have to consider that the environment that we live in is very different compared to the environment that we lived in 50 or 100 years ago. Um, There's a lot of endocrine disruptors and endocrine-mimicking chemicals and endocrine disruptors that block hormonal receptors on cells. So whether it's heavy metal toxicity or pesticide, herbicide exposure, or mold toxicity, or the foods that we eat that are highly processed that then affect the microbiome, which in turn affects our genetics, which in turn affects our hormones and our immune system. Those are a lot of major factors that I see can impact women and when they're starting to experience symptoms. Stress as well, uh, and then if you top stress with birth control, that of course is a double whammy. And with birth control, where of course we're suppressing our ovarian function, we're suppressing our ovaries and estrogen and progesterone levels. So of course we're gonna start to see more hormone-like symptoms earlier in life.
0: So I lo- I mean, you're literally talking about me back in the day, like someone who is living in stress, who is on birth control. I finally get off. My hormones are out of whack, which really opened my own wellness journey and, you know, wh- a big component of why we started Bia. So hopefully I'm an example of lifestyle, nutritional changes. Everything that you're recommending can really play a huge part. But I'm curious, you know, now that I'm a, on the other side, if anyone's on birth control right now, they're thinking about coming off. Are there any supplements or anything that you recommend that can they can really implement to kind of make that transition a little bit more seamless? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I think, first of all, before you come off of birth control, have a plan, right? Mm-hmm. So birth control has its purpose. It's just been misused and it shouldn't be for painful cycles, heavy cycles, mood disorders, it's meant to be for birth control. And there's a time and a place for it. And I just want to caution women who are coming up of birth control to do it in a smart way and have a plan, right? Because otherwise, you know, we talked about stress, there's going to be other stressors in life yes. that we want to avoid They're blessings, but also stressors at the same time. So that's, number one the second thing is get a hormone baseline don't Mm -hmm. just come off of birth control you have to make sure they understand are you even even being on birth control and whether it's an IUD, a hormonal IUD, or OCP, you could be still on a little bit more on the estrogen dominant side. So before you start messing with herbs and supplements, you want to know what your estrogen levels are, what your progesterone levels are, thyroid, cortisol, DHEA, testosterone. You want to make sure that you know what those levels are, so you know which levers do you need to pull or push. And one of the one of the most important things to do if you do decide to make that move, is make sure that you're in a good multivitamin. And even if you're uh, even if you're not coming off with birth control, you need to be on a good multivitamin because we just know that it depletes so many of our key nutrients. So you wanna make sure you, that you're in a good multivitamin, preferably um, a prenatal with iron or without iron, depending on if you're having a menstrual cycle or not. If you're in a birth control that presses your menstrual cycle, you probably don't need an iron-containing supplement, your ferritin is probably already, through the roof, but if you are having a regular cycle on birth control that you might benefit from a prenatal that has a little bit of iron in it. I would also recommend uh, starting on like a phytoprogesterone herbal supplement. So this is something that could have a little bit of Vitex, a little bit of wild yam in it, maybe even some black cohosh. And why am I suggesting phytoestrogen herbs? It's because if you are a little bit on the estrogen dominant side, Sometimes incorporating some phytoestrogens can block our own estrogen activity and phytoestrogens, even like soy, are naturally weaker there than our own estradiol. So there'll be a little bit of competition and so it can offset those estrogen dominant-like symptoms. But incorporating some of those phytoprogesterone or phytoestrogen herbs can stimulate those hormone receptors as if you have those hormones available. So if you've been suppressing your own hormone production through birth, birth control, then incorporating some of those herbs can help you get back on track faster.
1: Wow. Those are great tips and so fascinating. I asked a group of women who are going through perimenopause and my friends for some questions. I told them we we're going to be chatting with you today. So one question that they had was about the bioidentical hormones, which we chatted about. another question that came up is why the transition into perimenopause and menopause can push them down the inflammatory cascade so why does this happen and how can we prevent it
2: i see this happen so frequently in fact i went through this in my own health journey and perimenopause started for me a little bit earlier it actually happened for me postpartum and i couldn't quite fix it naturally and for someone like myself, looking back, even at my own personal history, I wish someone would give me a progesterone, like in my twenties, it would just mm. really help me out so much, but it took me medical school, you know, to get to the point where um, I could just give it to my, give it to myself without needing permission from anyone else. But I experienced my own hormonal fluctuations postpartum that led me to experience rheumatoid arthritis. and. I was experiencing a flare um, for a pretty long time. And I did everything that we've talked about, diet change, exercise, sleep, stress management. I mean, I'm a naturopath. I know these foundational pieces and how to live and execute on them. And it just, nothing was working. I was still experiencing flares. I could not even um, unfold my fingers when I was sleeping. I was in so much pain. And I finally just threw in the towel, I said, screw this, I'm 32, I'm starting on bioidentical progesterone. And it was a game changer for me and for my autoimmune symptoms. I went from losing hair to gaining hair, from experiencing joint pain to no joint pain, from painful crippling cramping to no cramping, heavy bleeding to normal cycle in a month, and what happens postpartum is similar to what happens to women in perimenopause and menopause, and that is a dip in hormones. And predominantly, initially when we experience the dip, most often estrogen stays pretty high, but progesterone is the one that tanks. And progesterone, if you look at the research behind it, it's actually being explored right now as an immune modulator drug in treatment for autoimmune conditions. Yeah. And progesterone, it affects our immune system by inhibiting prostaglandin synthesis. And when we inhibit prostaglandin synthesis, it's our way to turn off that inflammatory cycle in the body so that we experience less pain and less likelihood of developing autoimmune conditions. So for women, who are prone to autoimmune conditions or who are experiencing let's say joint pain or hair loss or just mm. body ache sensation, progesterone is, is really important to make sure that it is balanced.
0: Wow, I had no idea the power of progesterone. I knew it was an important hormone, but that is just so, so incredible. I'm going to pivot a little bit. And actually, this was something I was talking about with Kea before you joined, because my mind was blown. You know, you you mentioned thyroid a couple of times throughout, throughout this interview and how, you know, stress can deplete the adrenals and thyroid can be one aspect. And you were mentioning some metrics of like what your thyroid levels should be, which I'd love for you to share. And I realized mine was, you know, my doctor is like there was no red flag, but after hearing you, I'm like, oh, I'm actually suboptimal. So if you can maybe talk about, you know, the levels of thyroid and how women um should be thinking about it, because I thought it was very fascinating and I'm in this world. So <laughs> And maybe you can tell me what your
2: levels are. Yeah, Not that I'm supposed to be treating you on this podcast, but we can use we can use your levels as an as an example. I could walk you through it. So A lot of providers will only test the TSH or a a TSH with a reflex to T4. And when you do that, you're only getting the tip of the iceberg of what's really going on with a thyroid gland. So the TSH usually goes up when there's not enough thyroid and goes down when there's, let's say, enough thyroid or more than enough of a thyroid hormone circulating. And both T4 and T3 levels affect TSH. So we have this built-in feedback loop in our body. And we know even from research that optimal TSH levels are below 2.2, and even better if they're around one or 1.1. And what's fascinating is that a lot of fertility clinics know this, and they apply this to women who are trying to get pregnant. But after pregnancy, it's null and void. It's as if women don't need the thyroid hormone anymore. It's only like to reproduce, and that's it. And after that, you're off the thyroid hormone. So TSH, we want it to be at least below 2.2 and better if it's around 1 or 1.1. I'm not attached to the TSH because some women if we start them on, on thyroid hormone, when if they're not used to having so much thyroid hormone, you know their TSH, they might feel more comfortable with a higher TSH. Some women, once you start them on the thyroid hormone, you can see their TSH drop, but they still need more given their symptoms and how they're feeling. So the TSH ideally is okay to be a little bit on the lower side. You just always wanna be also testing T4 and T3. So this whole principle of, TSH with reflex to T4 testing is, it doesn't give you any information because you could have a suboptimal TSH. So then you don't even test your T4 levels, or you could test your T4 levels, but then you're not testing the conversion of T4 to T3. Mm -hmm. And T3, our T3 hormone is four to five times more potent than T4. And your cells will always prefer T3 over T4 it's, it's just, they ourselves know that they're going to get more benefit from something that's five times more active than something that's not. And where I see women feel their best is if their T4, their free T4 is at 1.2 or above, or mm-hmm. their three, their T3, at least 3.3 or above. And not that there isn't a cutoff range for T3 or for T4. Of course, there is because you get to a point where you're going to start having hyperthyroid like symptoms. But usually, if the T4 is around 1.4, 1.6, or even if at least it's between 1, 1. 1.2 to 1.4, and T3, free T3, is between even a 3 and like a 3.5 or 3.6, most women will feel better. Their body temperature will be better. Their sleep will be better. They'll have fewer food cravings. One of of my newer patients, we put her on a thyroid medication. She's a woman in menopause, just natural, was not an option. And one of the first things that she reported to me, not only was her energy better and she could work out better and more, but her sugar cravings went away. Mm. And that's just with like a little bit of tweaking of her thyroid hormone. So when it comes to thyroid, we need to look at the TSH, which is part of the feedback loop. We also need to Mm -hmm. look at our T4, T3 levels, as well as autoimmunity. So we want to know, are our levels suboptimal because of a potential immune disorder where our thyroid is getting attacked or the enzymes that convert T4 to T3 are getting attacked?
0: So fascinating. I just pulled up my labs when you were talking. Just if it's interesting for anyone. Okay, let's do this. I share everything so people know. I know. (laughs) And this was recently. So let's see. So my T4 is 1.39. My TSH is 1.16. My so there's two T3s. I see a T3 free, which is 2.8, and then my T3 is 82. I don't know what that is.
2: Yeah. So the we want to look at the free T3, and you're 2.8. So right there, I can tell you that there's a conversion issue because you've got your 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 brain is registering that there's enough T4. So Mm -hmm. it's not telling you to produce more thyroid hormone, but, and you have really good T4 levels because I said, right, 1.2 or above is, is healthy, but your free T3 is kind of tanked, right? And so this is where we would want to incorporate, incorporate nutrients like iodine and selenium and seaweed, To help improve that conversion and make sure that iron levels are healthy, because those are the things that improve the conversion from T4 to T3. And you know, I assume that there isn't like an autoimmunity or an autoimmune component. You don't have um, peroxidase antibodies or
0: thyroglobulin antibodies. I don't.
1: I don't. They test you for that that one but from what i remember from your last one jasmine i don't think there was got it but maybe it's worth yeah that's
2: yeah so if you that's one of the things that i would want to know why does someone have a conversion issue and of t4 to t3 it could be an autoimmune component so if your body is attacking the enzyme that converts t4 to t3 it could be a nutrient deficiency or suboptimal levels again of iodine or selenium or iron those are the big ones okay Um, and it could also just be, you know, that you're a poor converter of T4 to T3. So those are the, and, and, and sometimes people will fight me on this. They're like, no, my gland is supposed to be perfect and I can take seaweed and I can fix it. And I'm like, "Mm," you know, I see it not work. You could be, you know, doing all the right things. I was doing all the, all the right things. And I still could not get my hormones to, to be where they needed to be. And we're not born with perfect glands, Sometimes we just have to go with the genetics that we're given. And mm-hmm. if you're not a good converter of T4 to T3, thank God for a little bit of T3 medication, right? Like that's, it can, it can make a big difference.
1: That was so fun. We should do yeah, this I more know. often. I know, seriously, because Katie is over at Yeah. But By the way, so funny. I pulled mine up too. Cause like, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this was yeah, like, I'm going to pull that. mine up just to see not that dr Elena's is giving medical advice we're putting that disclaimer out there but it's still fun yasmin we have the exact same numbers no our- are you serious you we were saying them and i was like is she looking at mine like what's happening but like literally the exact same number like two like 1.2 2.8 like crazy um but that was really cool to go through Interesting.
2: Did you guys do? Was it also was it a, a finger prick or was it actually a blood draw? Serum test.
0: Blood. Yeah, you did a blood draw. Blood draw. Mm-hmm. It
2: yeah. was a blood draw. Okay, because this is a really great clarification. You want to do a blood draw, so we can even just kind of take a little sidetrack and talk about testing. There's no perfect test. There are limitations with blood draws, and there are limitations with urine testing, and there are limitations with finger prick testing. The biggest limitation of, or with fingerprint testing is that you cannot get a big enough sample to test what's really going on. And so I try to avoid those tests. They're super convenient, but they're super unreliable. And that's why I wanted to clarify, it's, you know, are we working with the right numbers here, depending on how the test was performed. You You wanna do a blood test. That's the gold standard for testing hormones. Um, because we can test total, and we can test free hormone levels as well. The drawback of testing um, using the blood draw method is that we can't test estrogen metabolites. And that's where urine testing is useful. I don't use urine testing for uh, treating people um, in terms of like even dosing hormonal medications, but I will use it to look at cortisol levels because that's another drawback of uh, blood testing is that we can't see what the cortisol curve is doing right because it's just a one snapshot in time but the benefit with the urine testing is we can actually map out cortisol and also map out those estrogen metabolites and see are they pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory so and always test in the morning before 9 a.m fasting our hormones tend to peak between 8 to 10 a.m in the morning so if you do any sort of testing in the afternoon, it's not very reliable data. I wanna see when you wake up, what what are your hormones doing? Because your body's resting during the night, that's when your growth hormone is peaking, that's when thyroid, that's when all the other hormones are getting produced and naturally they're going to peak earlier in the night, or I should say later in the night, early morning. So we wanna catch it as early as possible. Um, and when it comes to saliva testing, way too many fluctuations and variables, that one is hard to convince me to test.
1: Very interesting and such good advice. Well, I know we're running up on time, but you talked a lot about exercise, you talked about sleep, you talked about nutrition. I wanna talk about maybe some things that you're like, I would not do this to my body. This is gonna mess with my hormones. We never wanna say never, but what are things that some things that you would never do to your body?
2: I think i already said no to synthetic hormones so absolutely no synthetic hormones if you can avoid them at all it's interesting women will be okay with i should say women are will be anti-hormones but they're okay with drinking alcohol and that to me doesn't make sense because alcohol is so pro-inflammatory and increases your risk of getting cancer obviously more than hormone replacement does because we i just mentioned that hormone replacement Biden cause actually cancer protective So. Um, what i what I wouldn't do is I wouldn't yo-yo diet so I wouldn't put myself through hypo and then hyper caloric intake I wouldn't do that to my body I want to find for whatever stage of life I'm in what diet works for me so a lot of women what I recommend. As you're transitioning from different phases of your life, pay attention to your metabolism, pay attention to your glucose, to your insulin, to your hormones, because you need to eat for that phase of life that you're in. When we're younger, we can get kind of get away with a little bit of a higher carbohydrate diet, especially if we're really active. But as our metabolism changes, we really need to change our diet to incorporate more healthy fats, incorporate more healthy protein, and fewer carbs. An average American nowadays eats about 300 grams of carbohydrates. That's rocket fuel that is not getting used up. So I frequently you know, compare carbs to rocket fuel. It's like, well, the rocket uses the rocket fuel, but we don't. So that just gets stored as fat for us. And so it's really important to not do crazy dieting, find what works, stick with it, deviate, but don't do a sharp you know, U-turn, um, cause that causes additional stress on the body. And I also, um, you know, when it comes to exercise, cause exercise can be a good stressor, but it can also be a bad stressor is I would not over-exercise. I would, um, I try to shift women away from doing excessive amounts of cardio and shift them more to resistance training and bursts of cardio. It's okay to go on an endurance run or to go on your favorite 10 mile run, but don't do that. Like, don't make that your workout, um, throughout the week. And we want to build strength. We want to build lean muscle mass. That's longevity. Whereas excessive cardiovascular workouts, they can deplete your adrenals, contribute to muscle breakdown and or muscle wasting. And so we want to focus on the things that can rebuild us from, from within. Um, what else would I wanna do? So no yo-yo dieting, no ups and downs, no those extremes, no extremes in, in exercise um, or limit the extremes. And of course, just, I know this is common sense, but don't drink tap water. I don't know why I still need to say that nowadays, but the amount of crap that's found in our tap water from herbicides, pesticides, birth control, medications, heavy metals. I still see people who are, they don't need to be drinking tap water. They, and they're drinking tap water. And it's one of the things that I, that I always ask even my clients is like, what's the quality of your water or they're drinking distilled water that's stripped of of everything. And so we want to make sure that we stay hydrated. That's actually another thing I would, I would say is make sure that you're also um, drinking good water, get your electrolytes and minerals, make the world go round and avoid those unnecessary pollutants if possible
0: i love this Uh, elena what a practical interview i feel like i left this with so many takeaways so i know our audience is going to love it but it was such an honor having you join us thank you for sharing your wisdom that was so so much fun thank you so much i had a blast with you guys thank you so much for listening to this episode of behind her empire If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox.